0: Welcome to the official podcast of 4eternia.com. We have the power. I'm your host, AJ, aka Voodoo Magic, aka Zor. And today's episode is titled 40 Years of Power, a title selected in celebration of the iconic 1983 animated series He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, that was produced by the legendary animation company Filmation and celebrated its 40th anniversary just a few months ago. With 130 amazing episodes of audio, visual, and life lesson splendor, and a Christmas special, uh, and a spin-off sister series, pun intended to boot, this He-Man show, this lightning in the bottle, captivated so many children's imaginations, including mine. And simply created permanent keyframes in our hearts, in our spirits, in our lives, that still, as adults, we have been animating in between ever since. Now, several months back, 4eturnia.com uh, asked this great community to tell us their favorite Filmation He-Man and the Masters of the Universe episodes. Well, those answers have been compiled, and the top 10 episodes chosen by fans will be revealed today on this podcast. And who better to celebrate this top 10 list, this landmark of a cartoon, and this 40th anniversary achievement with one of the legendary creators behind He-Man and the Masters of the Universe himself. He's a writer. He was a storyboard artist and and known in the community as just a overall swell guy. Yes, he's one of the wizards behind the filmation curtain. Robert Lamb. Rob, it's an honor so much to have you on. Welcome. Thank you, AJ.
1: It is an honor to be here.
0: So so Rob, can you believe it? I mean, can you believe it? It's been Four decades, I mean, 40 years later, and we are still talking Filmation's He-Man and the Masters of the Universe cartoon. And, and you, you've become a living legend. So how cool is that?
1: Well, for one thing, it was completely unexpected. Um, at the time we were working on, after the show premiered, uh, we knew we had a hit on our hands. But this was before internet, before uh, social media and all this. So we could only gauge it by Nielsen ratings, by uh, some um, fan letters we would get. Actual letters would be sent to the studio. But uh, we had no idea the impact it was having on uh, the viewership, on on the kids that were watching the show. Uh, That... Came as a surprise years later when I did go online, looking up, uh, trying to find some of my filmation friends, and and discovering the world of He-Man fandom. That was a yeah. complete surprise.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess uh, you know um, Busta Tunes, his review site, uh, He-Man.org, mm-hmm. uh, became huge. And um, yeah, there's so much love for this show and. You know, to me, as a young adult, or as a young viewer, not not a young adult anymore, I wish, but as a young viewer, now adult, uh, the best word to describe He-Man and the Masters of the Universe is magical. You know, it was truly one in a million to me. It had such a magical charm. Uh, the kind of charm that you can't reproduce if you tried, you know, the, the lightning in the bottle saying, uh, mm-hmm. the music, the sounds, the animation models, which I think was uh, an improvement of the figures. Uh, the, the, voice, the voice talent um, and the talent all behind the scenes, like yourself, all the right people somehow came together at all the right time and created like, you know, this once in a lifetime cartoon that for so many of us really hasn't been surpassed to this day. Some may, you know, be quick to only credit the toys, but personally I credit, you know, this series, the show, He-Man and Masters of the Universe, a counterpart to those vintage toys as the huge reason, or dare I say, main reason that um, this fandom still exists, like it does, and the love for this brand is still thriving today.
1: Well, I'll have to say I do agree with you. Um, originally, Mattel was looking for um, a TV production that would help promote their toys. That, that Originally, uh, if you know the history, uh, Mattel had originally uh, licensed a barbarian toy line for Conan the Barbarian movie, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, until they found out it was an R-rated movie. (laughs) Very R. Yes, and so they said, oh, that that won't do for our primary audience, our our customer base. So uh, they were looking for a TV studio that would be doing a, a barbarian cartoon, and we had done Black Star, in 1981. Right. At the same time, Ruby Spears had done Thundar the Barbarian. Great show. And they looked at both series, and both were good, but they preferred how we did Black Star. They liked the look of the show, and so that began the negotiations in 1982. And from the outset, from Mattel's point of view, they were looking for a 30-minute commercial. And Lou Scheimer... Uh, the president of Filmation said, absolutely not. If we do this, it's going to be done for story content. We will use as many characters as it is reasonable to use. And we will try not to, you know, make characters do things that they wouldn't do that out of sync with the toys. But, and I love this quote, what he said basically to Mattel. Uh, we won't tell you how, how to make your toys. You don't tell us how to make the cartoons. Yeah, And that is one of the reasons why I think it really worked well because it was kind of a perfect storm. The right ingredients, the, to- the show would have done well if the toys did not exist. If, if we had just come up with it ourselves, it would have done all right. The toys would have done okay if the show wasn't there. But because of them both being united, they were together, had the show with the stories, with the character development, and all that, five days a week. And you had the opportunity to buy the toys. And a lot of the kids would have their toys with them from the TV set. Mm -hmm. And it just was the right combination, the right mix. And, I'm, and that's why I think it had such a deep impact at the time that still resonates with
0: fans today. You know, I was, you know, looking at it as an adult, I mean, I'm kind of shocked that uh, in regards to the deal that uh, Lou Shamer was able to negotiate. I mean, what a great deal. I mean, this seems like something that would be unheard of today, you know, but. Um, have-
1: i not make that mistake again <laughs> <laughs> with, with other productions, other things they, they uh, put in the contracts. We have absolute control over everything. I had, I had friends that were working on GI Joe uh, around the same time. And they would complain because Hasbro had total script control. And they said, they told him we are making a 30 minute commercial. So the whole point of this show is to sell these toys. So, we want as many of the characters on screen at the same time, all the time. And if G.I. Joe's team has to go from point A to point B, we need to use at least three different vehicles, because those are the toys we have. But we're just going down to the corner the
0: drugstore. No, ship, plane, helicopter. You know, that's why, and with this unprecedented deal, I mean, that's why I always, like, push back on people to say, oh, that show is just a toy commercial, because why is it? I mean, well, I'm just making a guess here 45 maybe 40 percent of those episodes didn't even feature Skeletor as the villain you know it featured some unknown villain that didn't have a toy that didn't have a story and you guys were just expanding the lore and it was marvelous and most people don't realize that they just think it's He-Man Skeletor sell toys but you Mm -hmm. you you guys were creating you know something so much richer you know and so much more elaborate well
1: and there were times when, when uh, you know, Mattel would say, you haven't had any stories with this character, this yeah. toy." And I remember when I was on uh, staff as a writer, I started out as a storyboard artist. But when I went into the writing department uh, for the second season of He-Man and the first season of She-Ra, there were a couple of times when I had written a script and I'd used, uh, for example, I used a, a Beast Man and Trapjaw. And my boss said, "Look, uh, Mattel is getting on our case. They they have this character called Too Bad, and they want us to use that." And I said, "Well, you know, really, there's nothing in, intrinsic about in the story I was writing about it, Beast Man or Trap Jaw. There was no particular thing that would do them. So I basically took those two characters out and put Too Bad in, and gave Beast Man's line to one head and Trap Jaw's lines to the other head, <laughs> and um, actually some of the bickering became rather funny, like, you know, you weren't there. <laughs> it was, yes, I was. So um, where it was reasonable, we did try to accommodate to some extent. We weren't, it wasn't a, a, a combative relationship, but we did kind of keep them at arm's length a bit, you know, as far as uh, we would accommodate where we could, but we weren't going to uh, sacrifice story and character development for uh, yet another variation on the toys. And also for economic purposes, we couldn't keep changing character costumes because that would uh, multiply the amount of of drawings, the amount of cells to be painted. It would um, raise the the cost of production to a point where uh, it wouldn't be profitable. And so, you know, that's why You know, uh, we didn't do battle armor He-Man. We didn't do a bunch of other things. We kept it pretty, uh, it had to stay a certain way because otherwise we, it would be cost prohibitive. We couldn't have produced
0: it. Yeah. I always go back to man at arms. If you remember the action figure had armor on one side of the body, Um, but the filmation version put armor on both sides of the body. So you can, guys can actually flip. Exactly. And reuse from, you know, him walking left to right and right to left without having to create brand new artwork for it. And um, but, you know, as a kid, Mm -hmm. I never understood why Man in arms had armor on one side of his body anyway. I understand it now. You know, you have a weapon in one hand and you're kind of shielded on the other side of your body Mm -hmm. and and you have free range of motion not weighing down your arm. But as a kid, I'm like, why is he armored on just one side of his body? It makes no sense. But um all right, but but you you know you were mentioning your, your career. So, so so let's go back. Um here you are, a young guy. Uh you want to get into a career of animation, you know, and then you're inspired. I remember you you saying you're inspired by productions like um Disney's Sleeping Beauty.
1: Yes. Um that was um when I was in high school. Uh, I remember that uh, Sleeping Beauty had been re-released to the theaters. It was made in the fifties in mm-hmm. and this is now um, late sixties. Right. And up till then, I hadn't seen uh, a, a Disney animated feature in the theater. I'd only seen clips and things on TV in black and white. Mm-hmm. And when I went to the theater and saw it, I was just blown away that the, the, the Quality of the artwork was just so impressive, and that's that's when I look back to that was when that spark happened. Uh, I was drawing and doing art myself and um, trying to get better at it and that sort of thing. But that one really, uh, really inspired me. Now, later, you know, go through uh, college, art school, and all that. I uh, moved to Los Angeles. I wanted to become a Disney artist. That was that was my youthful goal. Um, and I remember they were gracious. They gave me an interview and I'm, I was on the lot. And as I was walking down the hallway and I see the actual artwork on the walls and I know what's in my portfolio, I go. I am not in this league. I am not up to this this level of of uh, perfection. But I'll tell you the the um, uh,
0: that, that must have been heartbreaking at the time,
1: right? Well, the, yeah, it was tough. It, it was tough. The um, um, it's an awful reality check. Yeah, but I'll tell you the the uh, they were very kind. Ed Hansen um, was the um, and I have to double check that, but he he was the president of the animation department or head of the animation department. And I had a one on one interview. They don't do that anymore. They they have a you. You don't even get to go in. You just have to drop off your portfolio and then a whole team of them uh, criticizes the work and lets you know if you made it or not. Right. But, but Ed talked to me. He showed me examples. He could see where I was trying to copy their characters and, and trying to learn how to draw their characters. But he was actually looking for a original drawing to see what I could do, not just what I could copy. Uh, and in fact, what he did was he came around his desk and took my portfolio and spread it out all over the floor. And we got down on the floor and he was talking about the different pieces.
0: Wow.
1: What was good, what needed work, and so on. And he told me, really what you need to do is you need to get your chops in life drawing. You need to know how to draw a human figure. If you can draw the human figure accurately, mm-hmm. everything else is easy. And I said, well, So and he told me what schools he recommended. And I said, well, uh, should I take any uh, cinema courses or any animation courses? He goes, no, they'll just mess you up. Learn how to draw the human figure. If you get good enough, we hire you. We'll teach you animation.
0: You know, as a, as a, as a, as a I dare say artist, but when I used to be into art, um, anatomy oh that was always such a struggle for me you know and you would look at like paintings like frank Mm frisetta and you go wow i am never going to capture anatomy like that man does you know he he, you can well yeah that's that yeah those are some lofty goals right there but um you know my and 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 a fluid pose you know my my poses always look like they were just um posing for a camera you know and uh and then even if i was trying to simulate like range of motion that somehow they were stiff you know
1: it is it's is hard so i did take a light drawing classes sure. at um, at art center college of design in pasadena california and well private school it's costly and I ran out of money really fast. So I was actually taking night classes and, and working as a bus boy in the cafeteria during the day. <laughs> so, but I, I took the, the classes and I had a really good uh, art teacher, that uh, life drawing. All of the teachers at, at Art Center were working professionals, not just academics. They were working professionals that also taught. And, you know, he told me things like, there's no such thing in nature as a straight line you know if you if you draw a straight line down for a leg, you you miss the point. Yeah. That's good. And so there were I learned a lot from that. I tried several times again at Disney, and I I either was bad timing. They weren't hiring at the moment, or one thing or another. And what happened was I came in contact with a an art director at Filmation. His
0: name is Bob Klein. Oh, was that the frame store? I heard this story. Like you were working at an art uh, frame no, store. I was working at a a store uh,
1: called Aaron Brothers Art Marts. and they were re- they were bought some years ago by Michaels, which you might be more familiar with. That's a okay. no, and it was picture frames, art supplies, and you know, miscellaneous stuff, just like. What Michael's is today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. very, very much. So. Only the only half the store was was picture frames, and okay. and not so much crafts. Like Michael's has got a lot more crafts. At any rate, um, he came in to frame some animation art that he had, and of course I got real excited. And were they cells? Or? They were cells, They were original drawings. They were um, uh, concept art, which I really got excited about. And so I'm talking to him and. Uh, he said, "Well, I'm. He worked at uh, Filmation, yeah. and it turns out that uh, he said you might want to check him out because I think I think they might need some extra help. What it happened, this was 1981, and Filmation had sold, I think, five or six series, and the most they'd ever sold in one year, and." they were they needed they needed more people (laughs) to do this especially in storyboard now the way it had been described to me all through and things I'd read is you you had to work your way up to that you had to start out as a lowly in-betweener become assistant animator become an animator then maybe move into storyboards you had to kind of work your way up the ladder. Right. So the idea of applying for storyboard like starting at the at one of the top levels well, that was intimidating, and I. Um, uh, but I said, okay. Well, I'll, I'll give it a try, and I. I uh, took some time and I. Drew out some story. I I created a story and and drew out a storyboard of a of a space battle, uh, in my sketchbook. You know, I don't know if this will work, but I'll I'll try it, and. I called the the storyboard supervisor Carl Gears, and. Arranged for uh, an interview, and so I, I went in there, showed him my work, and he goes, "Now yeah, that's pretty good. Looks like you know film, you know storytelling, but your drawing is not quite up to our our level." So, but here's what I want to do is I'm going to give you a test, and you do this test, and I'll decide based on what you come up with. And so he gave me one page of a Lone Ranger script. And I said, you want me to storyboard this, this page? He goes, no, 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 just this one line. Well, that's one line. I go, give me as many camera angles, as many poses, what anything you can think of to describe that that one sentence. And he gave me some storyboard paper. And I go, OK. So I went home. And the story—I I remember the the line. Uh, apparently, a, fa- a farmer was about to lose his his farm, and the Lone Ranger and Tonto are giving him the bad news. And the line I had to illustrate was the farmer's shoulders slump in resignation. Okay, so I staged it on the front porch of the of the farmhouse with the with a farmer sitting on the on the porch ring his hands and and Lone Ranger leaning against the, the post and Tonto behind me. I go oh, that's one. And then I, I did a close up of his ringing hands. I did I did a whole bunch of different things. It, there were nine panels per page.
0: And my, how how large how large was the page?
1: Little little small squares. Um and so, so it was like eight and a half by eleven? Eight and a half by eleven because it makes it for easy Xeroxing ah uh, okay okay so uh, nowadays they do it differently but uh, later on we got to do bigger and then they shrink it down for uh, distribution right but anyway they were small and, and I did nine panels different angles I go and I did it in 20 minutes and I looked down and go oh, there's no way he's going to hire me with this so I grabbed a second sheet and I did nine more panels Put him inside the farmhouse, leaning against his fireplace. Um, you know, the farmer's
0: wife in the background crying. Anything I could think of. So you did eighteen poses of, <laughs> in of, this, of this farmer, slumped, upset that he's losing his farm. Yeah, anything I could think of.
1: Yeah, and and so um, you saw. I, I don't have it. I know I don't. No, I wish I did. did. Um, at any yeah. rate, I I called up uh Carl and I said, uh, okay, I done. Can I bring it in? And he goes, don't bother me today. Come in tomorrow. <laughs> <I> said, okay. <laughs> so because I had it was that morning. I did it that afternoon and I called him before the end of the day. And so I came in the next day, it was a Friday, and I handed it to him. He took one look at didn't even study. He just took one look and says you're hired. I said uh-huh. you're kidding because no, I've given this test out to a dozen guys, and the most I ever get is three panels. You gave me eighteen. <laughs> <Well>, oh, <laughs> and, I was going
0: to say. I mean, I'm trying to imagine the eighteen different poses you came up with. You
1: know, I, I remember some of them. I but, but um, uh, what? And then the producer Don Christensen comes in and sits down next to, next to Carl's desk. And Carl says, hey, Don, this is the guy I was telling you about. Like, you were talking to the producer about me? Hmm. And uh, and he showed him my work. And he goes, hmm, I see what you mean. This guy sure knows film. Too bad he can't draw worth crap. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> I died just then. Uh I he looks at Carl, and looks at me, and says, well, Yeah, well, hire him if you want to. And he gets <laughs> him and he leaves. And he, he's in a Hawaiian shirt, Bermuda shorts, and flip flops, right? <laughs> <laughs> he leaves. And Carl says, Well, he kind of put me in a pickle. You, it, you could certainly do the job, but your, your drawing is not quite up to our level. Right. I'll tell you what, I'm going to put you on probation for two weeks. You uh, assist another storyboard artist and, get, and learn the ropes, and in two weeks we'll we'll see whether you stick. You know. And I said thank you. That that that's great. That, that I can't thank you enough. So I'm all jazzed. I start the next Monday, and I work very hard and everything else. And at the end of the two weeks, I went to his office, and I said, Well, Carl, do it. Do I come back Monday? And he looks at me like I have two heads. He goes, what are you talking about? He goes, and I reminded him about his probation. He goes, oh, you would have known a long time ago if you were in trouble.
0: Oh. <laughs> you think he could have told you. You probably were on pins and needles for two weeks.
1: <laughs> oh, especially that la- that second week.
0: Yeah, and sure. That was,
1: and I was 25. Then. It was 1981. I'm 25 years old. I finally had my big break into the business. And we were working on my first. The first show I worked on was the New Adventures of Zorro, which was really good. Yeah, that was good. Um, Black Star was being done that year. Uh, worked on Hero High and Shazam, Captain Marvel, and the characters. Hero High was basically. Oh, was that
0: that live action?
1: Oh, we the Kid Superpower Hour. It was. The wraparound was like a, a laugh in. joke. Yeah. it was very lame.
0: Oh, it Carol was lame. High
1: was actually a repurposed project that failed to sell. They were, um, they had pitched the idea to doing the Super Archies because they had done uh, the Archies back in the '60s, and they were, but they didn't get it. So basically, they took some of the same characters and just redrew them. But it was basically Archie's the superpowers, only Captain California and, and Glorious
0: Gal and
1: Rex Ruthless was Reggie. <laughs>
0: so. You know, one thing I want to say about storyboarding, I know they're going to come after me for not talking about He-Man. We'll get to He-Man soon. Um, yes. But I was trying to explain to someone um, a while back, um, I think it was about comics, uh, where being an artist, you know, it's interesting that they needed both of that that talent set from you because um, being an artist doesn't necessarily mean you can um, draw comics or uh, basically storyboard, you know, an artist might be a spectacular artist in the world, you know, the next Frank Frazetta, but um, drawing, you know, amazing figures with realistic anatomy, but with all that talent, it, it doesn't mean they're capable of logically conveying a story with sequential art. You know, that's two different talents, right? Two different uh, disciplines that not necessarily is, is is joined or synonymous with the other. And I've seen talented artists who, who actually can't tell a story in sequential panels to save their life. And it's quite jarring.
1: So uh, I... I'll right. even go as far as this: we've had we had some very competent comic book artists who took our storyboard test and could quite do it. It's one thing to do a comic page that tells a story, but they're basically—I'll tell you what—for for a comic page that might have six panels on it, and that gets you through a sequence, animating that the storyboard would probably be about 30 panels. Hmm. Hmm. In fact, um, here I can show you. Here's, a, here's my storyboard for the Cosmic Comet. A now, this is 8.5 by 11. This is the size I had to draw. This is not a reduction. Huh. Uh, these things were cut. <laughs> but um, as you can see, even head turns and things that had to be a separate that had to be a separate um, no. panel. Yeah, and then from here, looking back down, and then her then her eyes glow. There's three drawings to describe. We had to do the beginning, middle, and end of every action.
0: See. Hmm. I see, and then the animators would fill in the blanks. So you're basically yeah, yeah, yeah. well. So so this
1: we had to describe what was actually going to happen. Right. Therefore, in this scene up here, we have uh, the energy going around the the gate to uh, Castle Grayskull, hmm. and then we have a cutaway to um, to Evelyn with her eyes glowing, and then we finish the sequence with the door opening. Oops! And voila, there's He-Man
0: on Battle Cat. Yeah. So that's, you know, Rob, did you ever, I mean, you know, animation has your heart, but you, were you ever interested in getting into uh, filmmaking? I mean, you know, like, like James Cameron, I'm, well, he draws his own storyboards, but I mean, I'm um, doing storyboards for live action movies. Were you ever interested? At oh,
1: all? yes. Yes, I was very Not much. So, so. I, I uh, in fact, before He-Man, between 81 and 83, or uh, I think it was after, yeah, after the 81 season, uh, a buddy of mine, Victor Kelly and I went up to Lucasfilm and we applied to be storyboard artists at Lucasfilm. We wanted to be doing Star Wars and Indiana Jones and all that. But um, didn't quite make
0: that. Steven Spielberg might do his own. Storyboards, no. No, he
1: he had he has others do it. Oh, he does. Okay, he. I mean, he may thumbnail things out, but he has uh, uh, artists do them in a more rendered fashion, or at least back then.
0: So you touched upon that time before he man, and maybe we'll get into that uh, real quick. You know, regarding the um, formation company, and then I promise we'll get back to he man. Um, But the state of the industry was getting uh, pretty bad right before He-Man went into production. And I know Filmation um, didn't have, you know, current work I think for you or for a lot of people, you know, and uh, Mm -hmm. because so much work was being shipped overseas, putting animators in this country out of work, you know, their jobs were being shipped overseas to Japan, to China, to uh, the Philippines, Mm -hmm. um, to take advantage of cheaper labor and bigger profits. And because of this, there was a big strike then, right? The animators in the United States yeah. went on strike. And did you ever think during that time, and you, you like you said, you went to Lucasfilm, um, that in regards to future um, opportunities in animation that maybe it was time to change your line of work, that there wouldn't be work in the future for you to have?
1: Oh yeah, here's the thing. Okay, in 1981, I finally break in, get hired by Filmation, I was unaware that the work was seasonal. Work for five months, six months maybe, and get laid off. And not because the work, you know, not for personal reasons, but because the production ended. We're not doing anything now, so we don't need you in the the studio. And then they would pitch ideas When when a series would sell, then they'd hire the different artists, animators, and background painters, and so on, as the production cycle would go through there. So, yes, and then in 1982, uh, our union went on strike, protesting the run- runaway production. In fact, Lou Scheimer, head of the Filmation, picketed his own studio.
0: What? Really? Yeah. Wow!
1: Because he was all for. He was the last... We were the last studio that everything was under one roof, that um, everything from uh, the writing through all the uh, character animation, through the background painting, the the camera work was done there. Mm. Uh, It was all done in-house. You guys were a cartoon factory. We were, and I I feel very, uh, very fortunate, very blessed because... On my coffee breaks, um, we had a, a morning coffee break and an afternoon coffee break for 15 minutes. I would, some of my friends would go smoke. I would go down to the background department and watch them painting Castle Skull, watch them painting Snake Mountain, and sometimes go into the camera department and watch them shoot the stuff. And it was,
0: uh, uh, it was a delight. And, you know, you mentioned Lou and picketing, and that's got to be so... So, Lou, I mean, I, I've heard you knew him. You know, I've heard all these amazing stories about um, Lou Scheimer. And for anyone who doesn't know, he's the, the co-founder of Filmation. I mean, of course you guys know. Uh, like, you, like you've you heard in other companies where you hear about a boss that proclaims, you know, we really care about our employees, blah, blah, blah. But Lou Scheimer, man, he was the genuine article from what I heard. Mm-hmm. And, and he truly underlined, truly... Uh, cared and was genuinely trying to do everything he could do to, one, you know, keep keep the lights on and uh, keep his doors open, and two, um, keep everyone, you know, all that animation work in-house mm-hmm. in the United States and keep as many employers employed um, as much as possible. So, was Lou the best person like you ever worked for? Uh. He had his faults. He
1: had his flaws here and there. But yes, he, as far as uh, creative, he he came up through the trenches. He was a a young animator back in this, you know, late fifties, early sixties. And when he, and uh, Norm Prescott and Hal Sutherland, founded Filmation, they were they were basically doing it trying to form a company that they could actually work at, but they were, uh, they were their They came up through the trenches. They weren't uh, business types that were starting a, a, an investment group or anything like that. They were working animators. I'll, I'll tell you something else about Lou. He would hire people from multiple generations, new guys like me getting our first start, but they were old guys and old and older women. That were that worked for uh, the Fleischer brothers back in the, the the Popeye and Superman days in the 40s. That were that were working,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I remember there was this one fellow, uh, one animator. His name was Jack Ozark. He was a uh, uh, been in the business 40, 50 years, and uh, he he worked for Fleischer. He had uh, done work on on Popeye and and all that. And I remember he walked by my office when I was storyboarding, first season, yeah, it was first season He-Man. And he just stopped and he pointed at my desk and he says, I can't do that. I go, what do you mean, Jack? He goes, I'm an animator. I can make drawings. I can make characters that you believe in. I can make you laugh. I can make you cry with how I draw these characters. But I can't make sense of that out of those scripts and tell a story. And I went, "Wow!" I said, "Well, well, Jack, it's a good thing Lou hired both of us because I can't do what you do."
0: <laughs> that's that's something, you know. Um, there, there was. I heard there was a uh, a reunion. I don't know, ten years ago. Did mm-hmm. you go to that? Fifteen years ago? Or I,
1: I was unable to do that. Uh, Okay. But I have been to uh, Los Angeles a few times uh, for PowerCon, which is a big Yeah. man Thundercats, another convention. Right. And uh, that was reunion for me because I uh, first one I went to was 2012 and I got to uh, meet some of my old co-workers that I had uh, worked with uh, back in the 80s and. Um, Including Vic Dalkelly, Kelly, which I mentioned, which um, uh, I mentioned going to Lucasfilm with. He he actually was my office mate in storyboard. Uh, we had two desks in each each little office, and uh, he also was my best man at my wedding. So <laughs> we're old friends. We got reunited. Nice. Uh, Larry Detilio one of the great writers of filmation, uh, got to see him. We got uh, reacquainted and hung out uh, for a while, and uh, just got to. See, and I was back there. I think in I don't remember. It was 2013. The last time I was there was 2021. That was the last one, in Los Angeles. And um, they moved it to to uh, Columbus, Ohio now. But it's it's now just a general toy convention. It's not he man centric anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I've been able to to reconnect with a, a lot of my friends and. And I do run into them time to time. Animator Tom Kirk and I will sometimes uh, be booked for the same conventions.
0: That's great. You know, I don't know if it's, um, you know, it's just a legend or stories, but um, I don't know. Lou, Lou is, seems like um, almost in a way, at least in regards to the way he tried to keep animators here in the country, um, you know, because he could, he could, he certainly could have made more profits sending that work overseas. But, you know, you remember that movie, um, It's a Wonderful Life, right? Mm-hmm. That Christmas classic. I can't help but make an comparison when, um, you know, like uh, Jimmy Stewart as George Bailey, realizing that at the end of the wonderful story, he's not as rich as he could have been, but uh, with all the friends he has, all the people he helped and mm-hmm. the hearts he touched along the way that he was truly, you know, the richest man in the world kind of thing. hmm and it, it always may, maybe maybe I'm overextending, but it, it it always gave me that kind of feeling. I mean, well,
1: it's funny you should mention that because I always thought that Lew sounded exactly like Jimmy Stewart in his voice. Yeah. Now, now he, he you wouldn't hear that when he does Randor or <laughs> when he does uh, uh, Orko, <laughs> but um, he had that twang. It just, it just and he. Tall man, probably 6'4, six, 6'5, six, tall guy. And, um, uh, but yeah, I would, every time I'd hear him talk, I, I, Jimmy Stewart would pop in my
0: mind. So, so, all right, we better get back to E-Man. So, you you, you worked on Zorro, you did all the stuff at Filmation, and then uh, the strike happened. Um, you weren't with Filmation for a while. And then, and then suddenly, you know, um, when He-Man and the Masters of the Universe started production, uh, you're eventually called back to work to do storyboards mm-hmm. and, um, you all were doing like a crazy amount of work because He-Man and the Masters of the Universe was the first animated series to launch first run programming Monday through Friday, mm-hmm. which required, uh, 13 weeks of new programming, five days a week, um, 65 days. Episode. New episodes total, which is uh, seems like a gargantuan volume of work. It is. It was. Now, now do you know whose idea this was? Was it Lou Scheimer's? Did he convince Mattel that syndication was the right way to go, or? or I man? don't
1: recall exactly. I certainly wasn't privy to those conversations, but um, one of the reasons was to. They saw the handwriting on the wall after eighty-two that uh the networks were diminishing their programming on saturday morning it used to be three networks like four hours of of cartoons hmm. about three networks well now it was like three hours or two hours one network i don't remember which one maybe is excuse me nbc that uh decided to go with uh, the today show instead and and dropped all their cartoons
0: that well, was a sad day
1: <laughs> they saw Lou and 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 the others saw that that was happening and uh, I don't know the exact process of of and what was discussed, but they came up with the idea of of going to first run syndication. So the there was already an afternoon block of cartoons, usually all reruns from Saturday morning shows
0: yeah
1: and the unique thing, the uh, innovative thing they did was they made it a barter deal with the individual television stations. In syndication, you have to go to a, uh, a syndication convention where all the programming directors from all the different local stations come to, to buy programming. And uh, whereas when it's a network, you're just pitching it to the network and then it goes out what they did was instead of saying well this is how much it costs to 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 buy our show they said we're going to give you the show for free there are uh eight minutes i think uh at that time we had 22 minute episodes and i think there was eight minutes in a half hour available for commercial time and this is what they said we're going to we're going to split it
0: hmm.
1: you let us sell four minutes of advertising." And you guys get four minutes of advertising to sell in your m- local market, wow, and they went, really? it was brand new hadn't been done before to my knowledge, it hadn't been done, and so that made it very attractive. free first run programming and that's an easy sell for uh, uh, for local uh, program you know local advertisers saying, "Hey, this is first run programming and our company Group W broadcasting was the distributor, and they would sell na- basically they, they'll, they would sell national ads for the four minutes. and the local stations would sell local ads. So you'd see a mix of cereal and a mix of uh, you know, local, uh, local stores.
0: Right. Wow. I never knew that. I never knew those were free, so to speak.
1: Yes. And and what happened was that the first season of He-Man, we had the entire field to ourselves. There was no other first run stuff and the ratings were sky high and it was extremely profitable for everybody concerned. Well, it didn't take long for uh, the other studios to get on board and... By uh, 80... That was 1983. Yeah. By 1984, the other studios were were pitching their stuff, and it had a bit of a diluting effect. Uh, Anything that Formation did after that still did well, but never as good as first season He-Man because there was no competition at all. And by the next year, you had Thundercats and Turtles and and um, GI Joe had uh, Transformers had a lot of, of content.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I remember it, it suddenly got saturated. At first, it was just like Bugs Bunny and Woody Woodpecker, and then He Man, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, you're right. It did get saturated quickly. And there's a lot of um, Japanese animation as well that was dubbed.
1: It was starting to come in. Um, uh, Saturday morning, you saw um, Mighty Orbots. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Saturday morning, uh, there was one called Reboot, and oh, then and then uh, now we're getting to about mid '80s, about 85, 86. You start getting things like Galaxy Rangers. Yes. And and then the direct one, which was Robotech. They came I in. remember G Force, and then
0: Voltron as well.
1: Voltron and all kinds of yeah yeah, so it, yeah it it just mm, Avalanche
0: all right so then let's let's get into your storyboarding you know you storyboarded um, what I guess you didn't know at the time would become such iconic episodes mm-hmm. which really in a way at least this is my opinion you know you you, you co-directed it in a way, you know, um, episodes like the Cosmic Cup, uh, Comet, um, House of Shyakoti Part Two, The Dragon's Gift, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Dragon's Gift was my first Team Man board. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. The Cosmic Comet has a production number of one. It was the first script assignment, but because we really didn't know what a He Man show was going to be about, that one went through the most rewrites, and it didn't enter into production until much later. And uh, so even though it has the, the number of episode one in its, uh, uh, in its identification, uh, it was probably about a third to halfway through the season before it, it aired.
0: Now, I have a question regarding the stock system that I'll table for a moment. But do you, do you have any interesting memories or anecdotes uh, about your work while storyboarding these um epic stories. I think you did the Return of Grandmere too. Um, yes. Like, which ones came easy, or which was a struggle, or anything? Well, yes.
1: Uh, the first season, I was very fortunate. I, I got a lot of Larry Detilio scripts, and great. they were very good. Yeah. Um, Dragon's Gift, House of Chikoti, uh, Return of Grandmere, and in the case of Grandmere, uh, a lot of times what we, we would get the script at the same time as the the uh, character designers would get the, the script and so we'd go ahead and be working and i i drew my own version of granomir which uh i patterned after the uh, dragon and dragon slayer
0: oh wow okay
1: and so i think man I'm really fierce and it was about halfway through you know it took about four weeks to draw a storyboard and 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 sometimes another week or two to do the revisions that director would want well i was halfway through dragon's gift when the uh first drafts of the character models came out and i was given uh and here he is this pot-bellied dragon with the dumb viking helmet on i did not like him at all and no at that
0: I time,
1: actually have them up there I, I can see them up there at the <laughs> time I didn't like it I liked mine better and part of my own kind of uh, passive aggressive thing i I stubbornly drew my dragon all the way through now I knew quite well it would not be it would not fall uh, continue that way as soon as it went to the layout department they would draw it with the right uh, character design right when I had to do return a granir. I continued my rebellion, and I still do oh. without the helmet.
0: Wow, Rob, you were stubborn. <laughs>
1: yeah, Rob, was very stubborn.
0: <laughs>
1: but uh, uh, well, and I'll, t- I'll tell you a story about, uh, an anecdote about, uh, I think it was Return of the Grand Amir. Um, Hal Sutherland was a line producer at that time, and he called me into his office after, he, you know, I turned to my first draft and there was one particular scene that he wanted drawn a certain way. And it's uh, a sitting on the edge of his little pit and he wanted an attitude. And he says, here, let me show you. And so he pulls back does this and puts his knee up on his, he opens a drawer on his desk and puts his knee up. He says, this is how I want grand to look in that shot. And I got out my pencil. And I was I was sketching him really fast. Okay. I said, okay. And I'll, uh, I went back and did it. So that was kind of fun because he, you know, <laughs> a model for me. And, and I said, "Well, if I drew this right, that won't get changed."
0: And that is funny that you had a model for Graham. <laughs> yes. He 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 wanted the attitude. Yeah. And I said, and that kind of captured it, you know. And and not to fly off on a tangent here, but um, John Irwin as Amiro, uh to me was just am- amazing because I couldn't tell who was him. I mean, you know, there's there's certain characters you know this, that you can tell immediately who is voicing him, um, mm-hmm. like the Ma- the mask character. From the House of Chakotay, part one. I could immediately hear it was man-in-arms with like this reverberation. You know, that's Alan Oppenheimer's voice. You know, Mm -hmm. Grand I couldn't tell at all. You know, John was so different sound. He he was so talented. Were you friends at all with John? You said you actually, you know, saw them sometimes, you know, record everything was done in-house.
1: Yes. um, No, they can't make it. We were to keep to our desk and do the work. But um, uh, I never met John. I met Alan. And uh, in fact, uh, Alan and I have crossed paths a few times. Uh, We've been on uh, panels together at conventions. Uh,
0: But uh, actually, you brought up Alan. Rob, Mm -hmm. I heard something scandalous about you. I heard that you weren't a fan. Of Alan Oppenheimer as Skeletor. Say it isn't so, Rob.
1: Well, I'll, I have I have come to love his interpretation. But at the okay. beginning, again, a lot of times we were starting doing things before voices were recorded, before characters were designed past a certain point, and a lot of us were, you know, really excited about doing this um, uh, sword and sorcery techno barbarian thing, and and. We had, you know, ambitions of, of, you know, doing Lucasfilm level stuff, and and, but we had, uh, so a lot of us, you know, looked at the design for Skeletor and were thinking deep bass, menacing Darth Vader sound. Sure. And when fir- first we would get uh, copies of re- of the vocal recordings on. Audio cassette, so we could just play them and, and hear them. And the first time I heard Skeletor in this nasally voice, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah it didn't hit us right because, because the expectation was deep, bass, and, and uh, menacing. I will kill you. Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, yeah but, I get that. I mean, I guess that was the first impression. That was the first impression. Uh, very soon I uh, grew to, to love his interpretation. And we had a lot of fun with it. Uh, the, uh, although I remember one time when I was writing a script, uh, I think it was for Capture the Comet Keeper, second season He-Man. Mm-hmm. I would, I tried to reintroduce his villainy and take him back to it being more menacing because by that time he, it was, he was being played for laughs most of the time. Right. And uh, I got reprimanded. Because yeah, I made them a little bit too evil. <laughs> and and uh, boss wrote, uh, uh, Arthur Nadel, the head of the writing department, wrote a note on my script. And he goes, good grief, Rob. He's not the devil. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry. The skull face and the ram's head staff kind of fooled me.
0: Well, in all fairness, the, the, the what you were sequelizing, the, um, the Cosmic Common, I don't think he was humorous himself um, in that episode you know, mm-hmm. uh, I think his, his henchmen around him, but so y- you think at least in the beginning, you, you would have preferred that voice you saw in the commercial, you saw the commercial, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, yes. And yet, uh, I will get you, you know, I mean, that was m- more guttural, more what you were at least imagining at
1: first. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: That's a, at that time, again,
1: in my twenties, that's, that's what, uh, thought it would be, and that, and we, we, a lot of us were, were comic book fans and everything else, we were very much into the, making it as dramatic. What we didn't know at the time was that there was a lot of pressure to keep violence out of children's programming. Yeah. And uh, looking at the character designs, the toy designs, everything, everything looked very uh, dark and there was a a conscious decision to lighten it up somewhat to make it more palatable to families and so so that the parents would let their kids watch it <laughs> if it if it gave them nightmares uh they wouldn't watch the show
0: yeah good point
1: so that that was that was the thinking of the
0: time hmm. all right so so moving forward to you know, I just mentioned that commercial, and it would have been amazing um, to see animation like that commercial. But I guess we'll move right into that uh, stock system. So, in order to do those um, 65 episodes in an economical fashion, all in house at Filmation, that cartoon factory, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, the major cost-saving measures was repeat backgrounds, uh, limit the range of movement, like the mouth talking and eyes blinking, and then, and then. Um, to reuse or repeat animation reuse stock animation of characters walking running jumping and landing so you can reuse over and over again against different backgrounds and different episodes to save money hence the the filmation stock animation system so i'm not at all an expert like you or an expert in animation history so i was just curious do you know to your knowledge was this like stock system in industry first or did the stock animation system of this magnitude occur before he-man and the masters of the universe
1: um every studio used reused stuff to a certain extent okay even disney uh you will find for example in disney's robin hood in the early 70s they reused animation from the jungle book
0: oh i saw that like the rotoscoping right walking yeah.
1: and and they there was any
0: number of things it was
1: uh, what filmation did was really systematize it i mean really came up with a, a, a whole production process it yeah. served a, a number of purposes for one it kept their lead animators employed because what happened is that before the scripts were, were finished, before storyboards were done, before they would get the assignments to actually animate for an episode, there could be months where they were out of work. Right. With the stock system, uh, we knew, okay, we're going to need close-up dialogue shots. We're going to need walks and runs and certain things. And that could be done in advance. So uh, that kept uh, our, our lead animators employed and and certain heads of the departments employed while a, a ser- series was gearing up for production it also had the economic standpoint of, of you know not having to redraw the same thing in exactly the same way just for the sake of doing it right. Um But what I'll tell you, that worked very well when we were doing 13 episodes, which is what a network uh, purchase would be. If we were doing Saturday morning, 13 episodes, boom, stock system was fine. Very soon we found the limitations of the stock system was that we needed some other stuff. And this is something that happened with the storyboard artists. We would go down and see uh, dailies. They'd shoot the stuff on film, they'd go to the lab, process the film, and then we'd watch the dailies. Uh, generally, one starboard artist, Dave, would get to go. We couldn't, there wasn't room in the conference room for all of us. And we'd come back saying, you know, I wish I would have had that scene where He-Man rips open this wall. I needed that in my show. But that wasn't in the, in the system. Well, what we started doing was taking our storyboards and going through them and saying, ma- making copies. Then, okay, this scene is a good scene that could be repurposed, and we cut it out and we pasted it into a notebook, and we made these little catalogs, and we and the, we called them same ass, because if you knew, let's say you're doing your own episode, and you have He-Man do something and he's going to do it again three minutes later, you'd say, uh, this scene 75 is the same as scene 23. And you copy and paste it in there. And that would be an instruction to the director and the animator to take the one thing and then reshoot it against this different background. And that was same. There was stock that was made beforehand, and there was same as that was basically salvage work that we take from episodes. But we started doing it more deliberately. We, it, you might call it data mining. We were art mining. We were looking for good stuff. Because here was, a, here was a thinking. The more reusable stuff that looked good, then, and we tell this to the animators and the directors. Who said, well, you're trying to put us out of work. If we don't have anything to draw, I said, no, no, no. Spend the same budget money and make the artwork, the new artwork that you do for each episode that much better. Take it up a notch. Because these reusable shots will save your budget line. And uh, and that happened. And at a certain point, actually, um, I think it was during Filmation's Ghostbusters, which was after she we were seeing the handwriting on the wall as far as all the work going overseas, and we were trying to stay alive as a as a company. I took myself out of creative work and did and did nothing but researching and cataloging good animation that we could reuse. And uh, they eventually gave me a, a staff, and we would we put things together and put these. There'd be like one binder, one three-inch binder of stock, and we'd have like about six binders of same as wow, and other stuff. It was a pain, but I, I think we probably gained a couple of years because
0: of that. You know, and I, this might be controversial what I'm saying (laughs) in the realm of he man and masters of the universe, but because I know it was perceived uh, that the stock system kind of hurt the overall viewing experience of he-man and masters of the universe especially when you compare it to other cartoons Mm -hmm. that were made overseas because the labor was so cheap on those cartoons um and they got paid by the piece by the way oh really oh wow (laughs) well
1: some got paid by the piece some by the hour but the ones that were paid by the piece the more they animated the better they got paid
0: (sighs) All right, so there, you could you could really raise the bar in regards to <laughs> the amount of uh, dynamic animation. And uh, this is your competition compared to the He-Man cartoon. So I might be in the minority, but as a child, I look forward to seeing the repeated <laughs> animation in He-Man. I couldn't wait to see my favorite uh, stock scenes over and over again as a child, like He-Man punching at the camera, mm-hmm. you know, and... Uh, For me, this was part of its charm in a weird way. So to this viewer, it became a strength, not a weakness. Well, thank
1: you. Uh, That, um, uh, the love of the familiar, if you will. Okay, so I remember, um, I don't know if it was Tom Seto or Tom Tataran or it's, but one of the sort of artists, one of the, when they were directors, put in, decided to put in every version of this one stock, And it's the one, you know, the one where Tila drops into into scene, back to camera from the rear. (laughs) Yes, and they put, and he put in, like a half dozen of those of He-Man, of 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 every of Skeletor. I remember Lou said, I think it had to be Tom. Well, it was one of the Toms. (laughs) And, of course, it showed up in dailies. (laughs) Boink, boink. (laughs) You're killing me here. What
0: (laughs) What a great gag. Oh, speaking of gags, and if you don't feel comfortable answering this, please don't. But just generally, I don't understand, and I would love to understand. The animation history has this long history uh, I guess animators or artists inserting phallic symbols into cartoons for all through through different company, companies um, and productions. It's like secretly in the background. What what's the story of that? I mean,
1: <laughs> well, um, I don't know about that specifically, but I do okay. know that different artists would try and sneak things in, okay. one thing or another. For example, in, in some He-Man backgrounds, some skeletal backgrounds, you'll find little figures from Black Star in the background. That's cool, actually. <laughs> what I did in uh, my first year, we were doing—I um, um, was doing Hero High, and I have had uh, gangsters in a car doing a getaway, and I put a plastic statue of Al Capone on the dashboard in my storyboard. And it made it through the the, the background <laughs> artist put it in there, so we we'll just do do some fun stuff like that. Um, the uh, uh, if anything was inappropriate, um, and I would say certain body parts, if it was caught, it was taken out. Okay. But uh, uh, you know, it didn't even happen at, at Disney's. The infamous um, uh, shot in Rescuers. There's yes. a. Uh, the windows, right? the window scene with the with the centerfold in it. So that is, different people try and slip things through. Um, generally, if it's caught, it's taken out.
0: Some people think they have seen what I described in tralla and some background shots. Some of the uh, lack for better word vegetation or uh, in the shape. You you know the big story where even on that Little Mermaid box art, you know. Mm-hmm you know, where they removed that. So it seemed to be like this, 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 this industry gag. And uh, I was just always curious about it. I guess it was just people. I'd have to say you'd,
1: you'd have to talk to the artist that actually did it because in some yeah. cases it could be uh, unintentional in some cases I'm and sorry. other cases, it may be intentional. Uh, the fact that it made it through mean meant that not everybody saw it that way when they, you know, saw the final product, it didn't, uh, it, it didn't hit them that that's what it was.
0: Yeah. I also remember, was, since we're on the issue, they they inserted something, um, some piece of nudity um, in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but no one could tell. You know, I how many, is it 24 frames per second film? Mm-hmm. Uh, no one can tell. But then once people got laser discs where you can go frame by frame by frame, just like... Um, some other Disney uh, productions and stuff, and you know that's when this, when these these little hidden nuggets came out, and then controversies, you know, ensued. So mm-hmm.
1: yeah, there was always, there were always individuals who who like to sneak something in.
0: Yeah, well that's interesting. So all right, so let's move um, real quick to the writing department because you moved to the writing department, you know. So somewhere in uh, the production of season two. Um, even mm-hmm. in the Masters of the Universe. You felt some scripts were becoming, uh, I think, repetitive and maybe, dare I say, stale a little?
1: Yes. Uh, because of the volume needed, we had staff writers and we had freelance writers. The Freelance writers didn't always get it. They didn't have the history with the show and, and they would just plop in a generic adventure story. Some some writer were notorious about taking the same script and just changing the names of it, whether they were shooting, they're saying it to this studio or that studio. They just changed their name so they wouldn't have to work so hard. But I had gotten spoiled in first season He-Man with Larry Dielio scripts, like I said. Mm-hmm. Well, I got a few less than enjoyable shows to work on. And the one that really got my dander up was Fisto's Forest. it was not good at all and i had uh material i had the uh, writer's guide i had uh, layouts of uh, castle grayskull and the royal palace up on my wall from from the background department and you know there's such a wealth of stuff that isn't explored a lot working in the same story with the different people people get in trouble by a villain or by a natural disaster and human has to save him again and again and again and so i pitched an idea to the writing department because i wanted larry to write it for me so i'd have a good story a uh, uh, good script to board and arthur said um uh, larry's busy and he said do
0: you want to write it i said me so this never dawned on you before, to actually. Well, I, I hadn't.
1: I had pitched an idea before once, um, but, uh, but was it for you to write it or for someone else again? Well, I had actually. Um, what happened was before I got hired back as a, uh, a storyboard artist for first season He Man, I pitched a script idea to Arthur trying to get into the writing department. Oh, okay, okay. So I did try once. Uh, what, uh, what happened with, um, with this first pitch idea, it was, um, what if somebody fell into the bottomless pit around Castle Grayskull and witnessed the power of Grayskull when He-Man transformed into the abyss? Yeah. And so I, um, Arthur said, why don't you try it? So I went home that night. I was boarding this awful Fistos forest during the day, and I was working on this abyss script at night on, on my little brother typewriter. And I in the process you had to write a premise first, which was what I just said, a little two sentence description. Mm-hmm. Then if that got got the green light, then you wrote a, a premise, which is usually about a page, page and a half, telling the basic story. If that got green lit, then you would do an outline which is about four or five pages, which is everything that happens. This happens, and this happens, and this happens. Here's the act break. This happens, and this happens. And once that is, is uh, agreed upon, then do a first draft script, second draft script, polish, and so on. Okay. My first effort in into the abyss was to have Skeletor trying to get into Grayskull. And in the ensuing battle, he throws or knocks Tila into the abyss. And uh, I had him actually gain entrance into uh, Castle Grayskull. And Sorceress finds out that he is, that Tila's fallen into the abyss because of him. And, of course, she's furious. Sure. And I had my favorite line. Skeletor says, what are you, her mother? <laughs> oh, that would have been great. <laughs> Arthur made me take, take Skeletor out. He said, we have had so many show, episodes of Skeletor trying to get us – let's just do something else so you came up with uh what is it pookie pookie well i yes i basically there's no villain in into the abyss mhm um and i also used it to kind of explore some more things about adam and uh, the script was too long i had some things that were had to be taken out but uh overall i was, I was pretty happy with it and arthur liked it and he goes you got another one.
0: That's awesome. Sure,
1: sure. And, and then I came, uh, I came up with uh, a not so blind because I I knew a blind. Uh, I had a friend who was blind at my church, and so I okay. I'll have a blind story.
0: Now that episode, I just love talk. That's another one. You don't have a villain in this, mm-hmm. you know. But it and was still, it was still suspenseful, and it was still. Uh, it was it was so good. I'm sorry, you go. No, and
1: and that's that. Uh, I really enjoyed doing that one, and I I also explored a little bit more. I had the kids at the beginning asking the storyteller why doesn't T Man just smash his face, Skeletor's face, and get away with things. Um, but that turned out to be a pretty good story. I got to use Ram Man, who wow. who I had a lot of fun with from House of Chicote. Um, in House of Security Part Two, Larry had Ram Man mispronouncing Shikodi's name throughout the entire episode. He'd call her Shabuti. <laughs> and I would laugh every time I, I, I read the line. So when I did Not So Blind, I, I brought uh, Ram Man, and I had uh, the boy touch his face, trying to see what he looks like, and he goes, "Ram Man."
0: Where's your neck? You know what that felt? That felt kind of like meta, you know, because that's what all the kids were asking. Like, where's your neck? Why can't you? How do you turn your head? And,
1: and, and I said, and he asked the question, and and, yeah. and he does this, he goes, uh, I'm uh. and then I had him address the fact that he's slow. Because he I'm not stupid. I'm I'm just slow. Yeah. And so that gave me an opportunity to do a little bit of character stuff there. Um, here's an inside story. I named the boy Luce L-O-O-S, after Lou Scheimer, Lou, capital S, because we had a running joke that when presented with new character designs, if there'd be three designs for a character, he'd pick the worst one. And we said, Louie, you're blind. These are better than that. And so <laughs> that was my inside joke, is uh, making uh, his name, naming him the blind boy after him. That's great, but uh, and then Arthur said, "You know, these, these are good scripts. We want you to come on on staff." And so I, I moved from the right from the storyboard department to the writing department for the rest of second season. He Man, although I spent more time editing uh, outside scripts to get them producible, because they a lot of them were just some of them were. Uh, uh, live action TV writers who'd never written for animation before. Okay. They're good writers, but they didn't know the, the uh, constraints of animation. So, hmm. and I was yeah. there from a second season of He-Man through all of first season She-Ra.
0: Yeah, uh, I wasn't as a kid. I kind of got lost and didn't keep up with She-Ra. Um, but I, did love that one episode you did that starred um, Lookie, uh, uh, Lookie Lens of hand. I love that
1: episode that one was an assignment I didn't want at first what happened was that um, uh, I didn't like the I, I thought Lookie, the, it was a gimmick I didn't like it I thought it was lame but Arthur said, calls me into his office one day and he says look we want to do a show about Lookie. I think you can do it and I go oh I don't want, and I whined, I don't want to do it. And he, he said, I'll tell you what, you can make it a He-Man crossover. You got it. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do Looky, you a know, He-Man crossover. And I came up with the idea of having a, a device that, that stopped time. Yeah. Which I mean, well, this would be a, a cost saving thing. So they only have to do one drawing. And, it just tells <laughs> and um, then I started having some fun with that. I thought, okay, well, the time thing would be frozen here, but as it went out, it would just kind of distort things to a certain radius. I said, okay. So, and then I had to have, okay, how well, how can it be defeated? Well, it can only be defeated by someone with, with magic. So a magical creature would be immune, i.e. looky so light hope drafts Lookie and sends him to eternia only because of the distortion with the time stop device instead of materializing in the royal palace in adam's bedroom he materializes in the throne room of skeletor and snake mountain and lands on ashes face into the uh uh into the table in fact
0: Oh, what do you got? What
1: do you got? Oh, I did. I did this as a as a commission.
0: Wow, that is awesome! Uh, <laughs> he smashed right in there. That is
1: yeah. man, that's taken from the actual uh, the video frame, just to, for reference. Uh, and um, and I just had a ball with it. And
0: uh, I could tell. I could tell it was so fun. And, and now
1: it's my favorite episode. It, the one I didn't want to do has to become my favorite episode.
0: Mm. And I loved how they struggled, both He-Man and She-Ra, you know, they were like it was um, Sword the Chain, not, mm-hmm. not Sword the Blanket, no. No. <laughs> I didn't mean to bring that up, uh, Sword the Chain, and um, they were uh, just struggling with it, and it was, it was... I don't know. It was so suspenseful. It was such a cool scene that they, this was really something. You could tell this was really something, you know, to fight against time. Difficult for them to do. I mean, it was just great. Well, thing.
1: I wanted them to struggle because uh, trouble with Superman, with He-Man, is that everything's too easy. Yeah. And it was like, like something to be actually a challenge. And so that one had to be uh, unusual, something they hadn't had to deal with before. And the and the whole thing with that was that as long, he, He had to hold his sword, because that's the magic part. Yeah. And as long as he held a sword, he was immune, and and yeah, and that's how he would get Adora to turn to, uh, to Shira. There is one error in the thing that I get called upon every time, because I had because one of the gags was um, we had a running gag with Madame Raz constantly flying into trees.
0: Yeah, you, you had the pillow. Right. So, so I
1: had I had her frozen there, and the fans would say, "But she and Broom are magical. Why were they affected?" Uh, and I go, "Well, you're right about that. Uh, I'll give you uh, a an excuse and an explanation, but the real reason is I wanted the pedal gag." Fans will get you every time. But I said, "But you could say this. She's not good at it. She's not an accomplished you
0: magic." They get, uh, what did Stan Lee call it? He used, to, he used to give out no prizes or something like that, I think, uh, to comic readers when they would catch like, you know, errors in continuity or something like that. You know, you'd win a no prize. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's the best I could do. I
1: wanted the gag. I knew. I uh, wrapped myself in the corner, but yeah. I want the gag.
0: That was a great episode. I loved it. So, and and then here we are celebrating 40th anniversary and first let's talk about this jersey you're wearing i mean
1: um, yeah i've been teasing everybody with this this is this, a couple of months ago uh, i was at a convention and a fan walked up in one of these jerseys i said where did you get that this is a hockey jersey for the grayskull battle cats <laughs> and you know i'll stand up a little bit so you can see them all it's really well done uh, got the year that He-Man came out in 1983 as the number, and I don't know if you can see this.
0: Yeah. He-Man, <laughs> uh, it's uh, He-Man '83. This is so. I had yeah. have it. my wife
1: got it for me for an early Christmas present.
0: Your wife. So I will
1: have this when I go on to conventions.
0: Your wife is fantastic, Rob. I don't think my wife would ever buy anything masses of the universe. I mean, I will pass the
1: compliment on to her. <laughs> I will push shout out. People want to know. This is from uh, uh, Geeky Jerseys. And, Geeky uh, Jerseys, and they have they have an Oracle one and Man at Arms one. They have one Gray Skull on it. So, um, but they're limited. Uh, this is like. This is one of three hundred, and, and they have a little number in, in the uh, on the tag in the back.
0: Well, if there's any left, I think there's going to be a run on it starting with me because mm-hmm. seeing it on you, I'm like, oh yeah, I got to get one. So yeah, gotta...
1: it's very well made.
0: Uh, uh, you know, and 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 this is great, and in celebration of uh, 40 years because you know, for me, I I, I was surprised that um, DreamWorks or who currently owns the show. Um, didn't release any fanfare, you know, or any new media for that matter in the United States to mm-hmm. coincide with the 40th anniversary. You know, last year we got the uh, the play on pictures in Germany, um, came out with that spectacular like Blu-ray set mm-hmm. that sort of timed with the 40 year anniversary of He-Man itself. You know, the vintage choice, He-Man in general. Um, but as far as I can tell, in regards to the show's 40th anniversary, *Heman man and Masters of the Universe, these series series, forget a trumpet, there wasn't even a whistle blown by DreamWorks in the honor. Of no, no, there wasn't. I,
1: I don't think anybody was paying attention there.
0: No, and it's a real bummer because considering, and I have this over here, and I'm sure you have a ton of, I have two of these, especially considering this awesome limited 30, 30th anniversary, you know, DVD oh. set. You know that uh, came out ten years ago. I was expecting mm-hmm. something for the 40th anniversary. You man. would
1: think so. You would yeah. Think so. Uh, yeah, or even even uh, that Mattel would do something. But.
0: Yes, yes. Well, be honest with you, uh, Mattel did come out. It's just hitting stores now. Uh, a new action figure line um, called the Cartoon Collection. It's an Origins action figure line, and it's based on the Filmation he man cartoon, Mm. and it's just hitting stores now. And they're sort of in the dimension of the original vintage figures, um, but they have the Filmation aesthetics and the Filmation faces. Ah, um, I don't think it's as wonderful as you've probably seen the classic figures, right? Mm -hmm. The Club Grayskull, I love those. I have them all here. And, uh, you know, Prince Adam, too, and Tila and, and Queen Marlena. And um, those are great. So these aren't as good. But so it seems like Mattel was doing something in celebration um, for myself. I picked up another uh, animation cell for myself just, you know, mm-hmm. to celebrate. Um, and, and, and speaking of animation cells, do you collect them at all? Robbie? I do not collect them. I had many that I had salvaged from
1: filmation my time there i had some but i've been actually selling them over time it's kind of like i'm i'm at retirement age now and i've been deep i have been distributing things selling uh, uh cells and and uh, artwork and such that i've held on to for 40 years i said you know it's time for someone else to enjoy them and so that's what i've been doing Uh, along with, um, uh, you know, painting these pops, which uh, uh, that's my contribution to the 40th anniversary. I'll show you real
0: quick. Yeah, that'd be great. Now, do you make these available online or is just... I have, but
1: I can't seem to keep them in stock. Uh, I'll sell out at every convention, so... I have basically what I'll do is if I've got a, a long stretch between conventions and I still have some, then I'll put them up online. So and them up, they sell very quickly. So what they are are uh, a He-Man pop. And I paint directly on it with uh, liquid acrylic paints, very similar to the method used to make cells and sign it. Oh, this and is this one...
0: This one I really like. This one is look at Snake Mountain. Snake Mountain, Skeletor. S- Skeletor uh, signature. Those are beautiful. Those so are done a, on how. A bunch of these. Yeah.
1: And uh, what I'll do is before a convention, I'll post on Facebook or or sometimes on my YouTube channel. Uh, I'll post. This is what I'm bringing to this event, and. I'll have, He-Man, Skeletor, Shira, Sorceress, Stratos. Uh, I've got one I've got to do. It's first time I've I've found uh, a an antenna that I've got to do.
0: So, that's so, my contribution to the fortieth. So before, you know, you you were mentioning you sometimes offer this on your website. So can you let everyone know, like your website and your media channels, you know, where people can come find you.
1: Yes, I've got uh, my website is com. I think there's a, yeah, there should be a link. I have an online store uh, where I have pops, original art like that uh, looky one that I have and uh, art prints. Hmm. Uh, what I, everything I do um, as a, as flat art, I, i'm I scan make copies of and sell us uh, autograph prints so, because a lot of people want something that signed and so i I have uh, uh, oh probably about 20 or thirty past commissions that I have prints of and they're E-Man and Shira there's uh I've got let me show you something okay so yep. oh. so like for example there's a uh, E-man and Adam. Yeah. Got a couple of skeletors.
0: <laughs> That's great. And uh, E-man and Orco. Orco holding the sword. Oh Teal and Orco. I love that one. Uh. And, and these are these are the prints that you offer? These these are prints. And they're they're um Orco and Battlecat, Battle.
1: Battlecat. These are past commissions. Men in Arms. Ugh. There's the Adam again. Uh, this is great. This one was a, a recent one, where uh, someone wanted the twins times two. And here's here's the print of, of the one I showed you framed, and his commission granted. Ah,
0: with
1: the sorceress.
0: Love it. So, and what did you do the original medium with? Was it um, uh, Prismacolor pencils? Okay. Okay. Yeah. come out really beautiful yeah so so that's
1: those things are are available
0: on your website yes on my website and and uh my uh online store okay so um i want to beat this tornado here um i did say we were going to wrap this up with that top 10 favorite episodes of Mm -hmm. he-man um again back in august on our social media pages we asked this amazing fandom what was their favorite filmation, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe episodes, and they responded, and uh, we compiled the results, and now we have an official 40th anniversary fan top 10. So, Rob, how about I count down the episode list, and each time I mention an episode, I don't know, we both maybe say something really quick, whatever comes to mind, a word, a thought, an episode quote, or even a no comment <laughs> if it's an episode you didn't like, you know. Uh, so does that work with you, sir? Yeah,
1: that'll be fine. Let's do it.
0: Okay, here we go. The uh, We present the top 10 favorite episodes of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe 40th Edition. Number 10, The Dragon's Gift.
1: That's a favorite. My very first storyboard. My first, uh, my first He-Man storyboard. My first Larry DiTilio script. The first appearance of Granamir. I uh, love it.
0: I love too, and one of my favorite uh, quotes, where he's like, "Granamir doesn't fight humans. Granamir wins." <laughs> I love that quote. Number nine: The Witch and the Warrior. Hmm. Actually, I don't, I don't remember seeing that one. So that was the one where Tila and Evil Lynn have to work together. And this was the first time that I ever saw um, Evil Lynn reveal that she had white, spiky hair. Oh,
1: yes, yes, yes. I did see that one. Yeah.
0: and my mom looked like Evelyn. I'm not teasing you, Rob. My mom looked like Billy Idol. She looked like, or Susan Powder um, from that Stop the Insanity you know infomercials back in the day. She mm-hmm. had a little white, spiky haircut. And I was oh. like, that's my mom. Evelyn is my mom. <laughs> All, right. All right. Number eight, to save Skeletor. This is the one with that Shagor theme. Remember
1: that one? Mm. Yes. That was a good one.
0: Yeah, he um, was like this one one eyed, large, massive chocolate pudding <laughs> with tentacles <laughs> that was going to destroy Turnia. Number seven. Let's see if you remember this one, the Rainbow Warrior.
1: Yes, that was a, that was a good one. That had a good backstory. A lot, a lot of a lot of good character development in
0: that one. And that was the one that we fans always found out that um, that a mom always knows that Queen Marlena, Marlena hinted that she knew Prince Adam was here. Mm-hmm. So great moment. Number six, Tila's quest.
1: Absolutely
0: one of the best, uh,
1: and that's really established the uh, just who is her mother anyway.
0: Yeah, I remember watching that go, Sorceress is Tila's mom? What? And I don't believe I saw it the first time it ran. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I actually learned that after watching a lot of different episodes. And uh, it was quite surprising. Okay, number five, Battle Cats. That was the one where we learn where Adam meets Cringer for the first time. And we get that cute Cringer cub.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I see a, a running theme in these, in these episodes so far is there's a lot of, they're either origin stories or they are character development mm-hmm. and backstories, which is what I love.
0: Yeah, yeah. They, they really dominate this list, but not all of them. And I think the next one will prove that. I think so. Number four, the Diamond Ray of Disappearance. The, the first, the first show broadcast, of course. <laughs> yep, I remember, and I had that litany of like you know, Skeletor was like explaining the villains, you know, Triclops and Beast Man, <laughs> okay, yeah, that, was,
1: that was basically intro to Eternia.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Number three. Let's see if you know this one: the House of Shikodi. I assume both parts because they both just... parts
1: I. Uh, <laughs> that was an excellent one that was uh, a Larry Detelio script two-parter uh, Don Manuel uh, boarded the first half and I boarded the second half the second half was actually the original script and got expanded into a two-parter uh, and uh, part one was actually the expansion off of off of the uh, part 2. And it was oh, it was it ran way over budget. Um let's see. I just happened to have the storyboard for it right uh, there. Yeah, there we go.
0: That's awesome. Oh, look at her standing there. All oh. right. Uh, that, that was one of the really scary
1: creepy right. characters. Yeah. Very Lovecraftian. Mm. And this one, I don't know if you can see, but let me see if I can bring it up here close. Uh, yeah. yeah. See here where it says, uh, ably assisted by Don Manuel, Steve Hickner, Tom Seto, and the rest of the storyboard staff. I was over budget and um, behind, uh, beyond my deadline. And I had... Uh, Revisions come back where the show was running long. We had cut sequences out and I had to draft other members of the storyboard uh, department to help me finish my revision so we could get it out of the department. So when looking at it, I sell copies of the board and I I show them to people. I said, look, this is why the drawings do not match. There are like five different drawing styles throughout this because, because the whole department worked on this to get this out. Um the other thing was an entire sequence was taken out that they forgot to change one line of dialogue at the end of the episode. Um, there were a lot of obstacles to get from to get to the uh main room of the of the pyramid. And one of them involved this bat, this flying snake with bat wings. It was called a bat snake. And it went on for a several pages of storyboard hmm. well that, that was easy to take out because it didn't advance the story it was just one more obstacle but at the end ram man has a line that says yeah that bat snake thingy there is no bat snake thingy in the show they should have <laughs> cut the line too
0: oh <laughs> well, but... you can just chalk that to being ram man <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know i i couldn't i was amazed when i watched that episode um what struck me the most was when they entered the, the mouth of Chakotty, you know, the mouth mm-hmm. appears and He-Man bravely, actually they all bravely enter it. And I was like, this is so wild and so odd to see in a, in a He-Man and Masters in the Universe episode.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a lot of that. Um, yeah. When He-Man, um, when, when the boy Stanlan is, Pulled through the door with the, these tentacles, oh. grab him and pull him through the door.
0: Yeah. and
1: Jacoti's face is on the door, and He-Man slices through the door, cuts her face in half.
0: Yeah, that was shocking too.
1: Very shocking. Uh, yeah. Even though, with, yeah, it's stone; it wasn't her real face, but yet visually, it was, it was very dramatic.
0: Mm, it was. It was, and it's, and it's no wonder for that. Um, it's on this list hmm so all right that was number three no two two more to go number two evil seed another one that had uh horrific moments and jump scares uh, there were a couple times it would jump scares with those vines that just would shoot like from the screen of the gray skull uh, you know, mm-hmm. right out to the viewer. And it was, you know, you see those things in horror movies. It's intended to make people jump, flinch in their chair. And here yeah. it was in the Evil Seed episode. It was amazing.
1: My favorite part of that was Evil Seed's death scene.
0: Oh. He goes
1: on and on. And, and,
0: but but uh, Tom Cito did that one, and it, I really liked that. You know, my favorite moment of that death scene is the moment afterwards when they're all looking at his decrepit body, his corpse, and all you hear is the whistling of the wind. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, and it's, there's no music, and it's just very chilling. Kind of like in the, um, House of Shakoti part two, in the beginning when you hear like the wolves, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Howling, I
0: was like, whoa, this is chilling, you know? And this is a yeah. human episode, it's so good, it's so good. And finally, number one, the problem with power. Of course, right? Of course. Of course, that's all I can say.
1: That was uh, written by Bob Ford. Uh, He was another one uh, followed in my footsteps, going from storyboard to to writing. Uh, He wrote that as a freelance script, but then actually after I left the writing department, after the first scene of she uh, Arthur brought Bob Forward in uh, to the writing department for the rest of his time at, at Filmation. Mm. So he was one of the top writers.
0: So, Rob, uh, do you have anything else that you would like to add that we haven't covered, or anything in general you'd like to say before we close this out?
1: Well, First of all, I'm I'm still amazed and highly gratified at the interest in the work that we did so long ago. Uh, we try to do our best with it, and and the fact that uh, it's so appreciated is is a great honor. Um, for those who are um, out and about, uh, keep an eye out. I may be in a at a convention near you. The next, uh, the next one I've got on my schedule is um, in March, uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, the Lexington Con. And that's, I believe, um, the first weekend of March, uh, 7th
0: through 10th of 24. Okay, all right. Well, first I wanna say uh, happy 40th birthday, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Mm-hmm and uh and that's a wrap all uh we want to thank rob for joining us today rob it's been an absolute honor to have you on thank you very much thank you it's been a pleasure and I want to thank this wonderful community out there for listening and watching this podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this show, uh, please show us your support by liking and subscribing to our streams. You can also drop us a line, too, uh, by sending us an email to forturnia at gmail.com. We really do love the feedback regarding... Um, Uh, Rob's website and YouTube channel, and we'll also have links um, to those pages in this article that uh, is featuring this podcast. And then as always, please visit us at forturnia.com for all the latest updates and news, as well as our community forum and links to our social media pages like uh, Twitter, well it's actually X now, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram that can help you Stay up to date with all of our Masters of the Universe content. So that's it. I would like to thank you all for listening and let the power return. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody.